I was thinking the other day about the post-pandemic church. What is it going to be like? Will it be a vibrant church or will it be weak? Will it still have the good news or still be afraid of the virus? Will it be in harmony or will it be out of tune? This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. There's one thing for sure. When you look at this pandemic that started over a year ago, it has separated the sheep from the goats in terms of the church, and it may not necessarily, in my opinion, be a bad thing. Before the pandemic, back when I did just a weekend show, I used to talk about the ineffective or the wimpy church, a church that didn't have a purpose. We call it now the woke church. In other words, the church of the social justice warrior. They've long since abandoned the gospel. Then there are a lot of churches that that talk a good game. They say the right things. They have great music that just captures everybody's hearts and minds with a light show, soloist and a praise band. And the message is, is encouraging, but is it life-changing? A lot of churches were actually beginning to be in trouble long before the pandemic started. I ran into an article probably a couple of years ago, and I remembered some of the points made in the article, and I had to put them together. This is one guy's idea of the six signs of a bad church, to know that you're in trouble. Now, there's a lot more to it. Let's just look at it from the standpoint of churches that actually believe that they are Christian churches and they believe they are, they're all going to heaven. And these are some of the warning signs that your church may be in, in serious trouble. Number one, severe theological errors are pervasive in that church. Now, this is not talking about minor differences over minute matters of theology. I'm not getting in there. I'm not going to debate between pre-trib, mid-trib, or that kind of stuff, or a lot of the smaller things that can tear us apart that Satan uses to keep Christians from even associating with each other. I'm talking about, I'm talking about such essential errors where you deny the truth of the gospel. You deny the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of that going on. In some cases, the leadership doesn't even hold that salvation is through Christ Jesus. They, it can be from anywhere, kind of like the first church of Oprah. Then you have churches, and I've, oh, I've, I can think of a few that I know firsthand a church that is known as a pastor eater. The congregation terminates pastors on a regular basis. At the very least, pastors felt the pressure to leave and short tenure thus was normative for these churches. Now I'll tell you what that means, just so you know. That means as a general rule, the pastor was preaching the gospel and the people don't want to hear it. They want to hear 
as the Bibles say, they want to heap upon themselves teachers with their itching ears. And when they finally hear the message they want to hear about themselves and how good they are, well, maybe that pastor will last a while. Preach the gospel and you're toast. Then you have the congregations that are consistently, never-ending, severe conflict. Any group will eventually have some kind of conflict. You see it in families. You see it in employment, students, and, and schools. And yes, it even happens because of our sinful nature in churches. But these, these totally dysfunctional churches take conflict to a new level resulting in an emotional outburst by members and even the leaders. Here's number four. Nobody in the community ever heard of them. They don't even know your church exists. Here's a simple step. And, and I've done it when I visited towns before. I'll, I'll kind of ask somewhere nearby, do you know where so-and-so church is? And they'll look at you with a blank stare. Never heard of it. Don't know who they are when you try to get directions. If your church has been around 10 or 15 years and something a quarter mile away, a business or a gas station doesn't know you exist or never heard of you, then what kind of an impact have you made in your community? Probably very little, probably none. Number five, and I've seen this one over and over again. The church is declining while the community is growing. Let me say that one again. The church is declining while the community around it is growing. A good example is this. Suppose you're in a church and you're your weekly attendance. This is prior to the pandemic. We'll, we'll take that out of the equation for the moment. We'll get to it in a minute. Let's say that every year you went down about 3 or 4% every year. And I've always warned churches that I have visited that the idea of you know having uh, two new members come in while three leave every year is you don't notice that you're declining. It's not that visible. You, you see some new people arrive. But more people are leaving than are coming in. I'm thinking in my mind of about four churches that I have tried to, to talk to over the years and remind them, you need to be in your community. You need to be sharing the good news. Stop hiding the good news under the bushel, under the, you know, the bushel barrel. Be the salt and light. Stop, stop just showing up on Sunday for your own personal gathering. Where is your discipleship? Generally, they don't have it. So let's say that community where you're declining about 3% every year, the, the town is growing by about 4% every year. Hey, I know a town right now that's growing even bigger than that. And I know a church in that town declining faster than the numbers I just gave you. They won't be around much longer. I know a few that are like that. I understand one thing. The world is not in harmony, and I apologize for what I used to, to get your attention at the beginning of the program today, the disharmony of the music. It was for a point to, to show you the disconnect of how the church is not working and functioning together. 
in their community. Every man for themselves. They're, they're not working in harmony. When you have a community growing and a church dying, you've got one of several things happening. Number one, your church is no longer effective. Your church is no longer relevant. Your church doesn't care about the community. You only care about what goes on inside the four walls of your building. You're in this survival mode. We're poor till Jesus comes. We're, we'll be the faithful. You know, all I want to do is make sure that I'm the last guy buried by the pastor before the church closes. I've seen it. And these are some of the churches that are having the biggest post-pandemic problem. And number six, I've seen this one too, and maybe you have. It's what I call the family-owned and operated church, where you have one family, maybe even their extended family, They make all the decisions. Nothing ever can be done, approved, even the hiring of a pastor, unless unless that family gives the blessing. Because somewhere along the way, maybe they gave a piece of land or they, they they bought some kind of musical instrument or made a big contribution to the building fund, and they thought they bought title and ownership to the church. If you have a church like that, you need to get out of it because that family will destroy it. They always do. I've never seen it where where it ever succeeds. So that was the pre-pandemic church problems. Now we have a whole new host of, of issues. A lot of churches, they really weren't the most important thing in people's lives. At least a minimum Of 25% of people that used to go to church will never come back since the pandemic. They'll go to the Walmart. They'll they'll go grocery shopping. They'll go to all kinds of things, but they're going to be deathly afraid of getting the coronavirus if they come to church. That's going to be their new excuse. They've made it. They now have a legitimate excuse to say why we can't go. And they really don't get anything out of watching it online. Of course, I'm the same way. I I have an issue with the online church. I get a lot of email because I am in ministry from some of these organizations, these, you know, church growth, church analysis, now the online church, how to make a great impact with your church on YouTube. I don't want my church on YouTube. YouTube is owned by satanic Google. I don't want to participate with them in having my church dependent upon them. Your church need never be dependent upon Facebook, Twitter, or Google, or Facebook, or any of that social media. Get away from it. Because, see, once you have thrown yourself in with them, they have the ability, whenever they want, to pull your plug. And see, that's something we'll be talking about on tomorrow's program, what I call censorship of people that, that have values, conservative, and people of faith. Google and Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, these people are not your friend. Reading, reading a story the other day, Dennis Prager has a thing called PragerU. I don't always agree with everything that Dennis Prager says, but overall, the information he puts out is excellent mind-challenging, and and really good stuff. Generally very logical. 
Well, YouTube threw them off. Other platforms have thrown them off. And now, you know, every time they got thrown off a platform by the tech, you know, the, the satanic tech tyrants, they found a way. But now they've invested a lot with this other company that decided to change their, their terms of service to be more woke, to be more worldly, to be more anti-Christian, to be more social justice, to be more, oh, what am I looking just loving sin more than, than righteousness. And they don't want that hate speech about morality, right and wrong, on their platform, so they have to leave again. We're seeing, I remember emergency management when I first went into the field as a public information officer. I started taking a lot of courses, and I had to go through a tremendous amount of training over a number of years. You understand this circle of of a crisis, when a disaster strikes. You're normally spending time in preparation. Then you have to deal with mitigation, recovery, and and all these aspects. Right now, when you look at the pandemic, we're kind of at the heading toward a recovery stage, unless they can knock us back into a new panic. Will the church come back stronger? That was my question to begin with. Only a very few will the ones that were faithful to begin with, the ones that didn't run away, the ones that that were part of their community. The new normal is going to be, we're not going to have near the number of people attending church that we we used to. Even before the pandemic, we already were below 50% of the United States being involved in any way, shape, or form with any kind of organized religion which includes synagogue, mosque, and churches, and anything else. The majority of people are no longer connected to the faith, and I think that's one of the reasons that God's hand of protection is gone. And we're seeing evil leaders being put over us, evil rulers, not just leaders, they become rulers. They become self-indulged rulers like the Lori Lightfoots. We'll talk about her tomorrow. They become self-indulged like St. Andrew Cuomo the Pious of New York or Gretchen Whitmire in, in Michigan or Gavin Newsom in California, Murphy in New Jersey. They become so full of themselves as they lock you down and, and enjoy their power trip. And in, in every one of those states where they enjoyed the power trip, they also had about the worst results for the coronavirus. Some things I can predict right now. Adult Sunday school, it's dead. The multi-campus church, you know, where you have the superstar pastor at the big church. I can think of one in South Carolina. I watched grow from a dorm room in Anderson, South Carolina to a multi-church across the state of South Carolina organization. Their leader ran into some, shall we say, issues, and they about self-imploded. But there's going to be the death of the multi-campus, you know, the simulcast preacher, the superstar on the big screen. It's over. I think they'll never be able to pull that together again because they never had the audience online they thought they would get. These physical campuses are costing a lot of money. And 
some of their members, they don't care about fellowshipping one with another. They just grab their entertainment. I had a person write me a while back. I want to share this before I forget. They, she had heard me on, on the radio talking about what I call the entertainment center church, you know, with the light show and the smoke machines, the praise band, uh, everything perfectly choreographed. And it never made sense until the pandemic. And last year, she writes and said, you know, started watching my church online. And I realized you're right. This was like a Hollywood theatrical production designed to move my emotions. And it became so obvious when watching it on a TV screen. So those kind of churches may kick around, but without the big buildings, the superstar will now be an online star until the tech tyrants pull the plug. What you are going to see, I believe, is a resurgence of small local churches and church plants. They're going to be getting down to the essence of God's word. They're going to mean what they say and act accordingly and stand on the authority of God's word without compromise. They're going to take the words of St. Peter to heart that we always obey God's law even when it's in contradiction to the laws of men. We saw in Canada pastors being arrested and thrown in jail over the coronavirus because don't you know that you know the Walmart, the liquor stores, and the marijuana joints don't give you the coronavirus. Only a church does. You're going to find a leaner church. Yeah, a much leaner church. An efficient church. More like the early church. I know for my denomination, it's going to be the purity of God's word, the gifts of his sacrament. We're going to share in the traditions and we're going to see lives changed. People are going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be changed. And we're going to preach it without compromise. Our faith is under assault. And I'll be talking about that later this week, how it is under assault. It is urgent that we begin to recognize that we're coming into some really difficult times for the church. The church needs to be, as you can hear, in harmony. We're going to take a break. And when we get back, I have something very special to share with you on the other side, taking the break just a wee bit early. If you believe in this ministry, visit our website, truth2ponder.com, truth2ponder.com. Our mailing address is Truth to Ponder, 21 Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263. We're in Sky Valley, Georgia, zip code 30537. We'll be right back. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. The actual case of a man killed by slander coming up. Shalom Alechem. This is the nice Jewish boy, Jonathan Kahn, your Jewish connection, bringing you the riches of your Jewish roots in Jesus. Now get your pen out as fast as you can so you don't miss out on receiving a special free gift you're going to get and love in a moment. Now, in 1975, a Sacramento Superior Court awarded the family $107,000 to compensate them in the case of a man who was killed by slander. The man was John Abercrombie, a retired Air Force colonel with a distinguished World War II combat record and assistant scoutmaster, a civilian analyst for the 
Californian Highway Patrol. Abercrombie was accused of stealing a 63-cent can of Danish bacon. He was brought to court. He was later found innocent of shoplifting, but the accusation broke him. Afterwards, he lost his zest for life. He grew depressed, and finally his heart gave way, and he died. And so the court found him murdered by slander. It's true, and it happens. It just bears out what the Bible says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can actually kill somebody with words. Slander is a type of murder. If you engage in it, you're a type of murderer. When you speak words of slander and gossip or false accusation or hatred or criticism, discouragement or contempt, you're in possession of a dangerous weapon, your mouth, and you can actually kill somebody with it. Such words over days and weeks and months and years can actually break somebody's spirit, ultimately even take away their health and their life. Are you guilty of murder or are you in the process? Repent. Keep your mouth far from any evil word. Speak instead words of life, of praise and love and encouragement and compassion and thanksgiving. For if words of hate bring death, then words of life can raise the dead. Don't be a murderer. Be a redeemer. Speak a new and unexpected word of life today to somebody who needs it. For death and life are in the power of your tongue. Now the free gift for you. What if you discovered the place of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, a newly revealed ancient discovery just as awesome. The mystery of the temple doors. You'll love it. It's our free gift for you. And Sapphire's daily spiritual vitamins guaranteed to revitalize your walk. Or a free New Testament. How do you get all these free gifts? Easy. Just remember Jesus' real Hebrew name, Yeshua, and dial it. That's it. Just dial 1-800-YESHUA-1. You'll be so blessed. But call now, 1-800-YESHUA-1. Now, the Jewish people brought you the blessings of salvation. I invite you to join with me to bring it back to them, to bless those who blessed you and reach the unreached peoples from every nation. Just call now, 1-800-YESHUA-1. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A-1. Or write me direct, the nice Jewish boy at box 1111, Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey, 07644. It's a nice Jewish boy. It's box 1111, Lodi, L-O-D-I, New Jersey, 07644. Well, until next time, this is Jonathan Kahn saying Shalom Aleichem. Peace be to you, my friend, in Messiah. Tikvatenu, our hope. This is Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. And welcome back to part two of our Wednesday edition of Truth to Ponder. I'm your host, Bob Bierman. I spent the first part of the program today talking about the the post-pandemic church. It is going to be a different church. Because see, for the first time, the church in the Western world is really beginning to feel some true persecution and not being, shall we say, any more loved by the state in the United States go through history. Think about this. We've been around for 240 some odd years. In the first hundred and I don't know, 60 years, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court only, only had three cases regarding freedom of religion that ever came before it. And all three times, rapidly and quickly, ruled in favor, ruled in favor of freedom of religion and the freedom of saying what you believe without fear of government reprisal. Lyndon Johnson really started in earnest changing that. Now there were some 
people trying to suppress religion, even in the 1930s and 40s. And in the 1950s, Lyndon Johnson put a gag order on churches talking about politics because they were talking about him and he didn't like it. And he was a powerful senator from the great state of Texas and he pulled it off. He got an amendment called the Johnson Amendment that clamped down on churches having any freedom of speech. The pandemic proved one thing. The vast majority of the churches in the United States are weak, worthless, and wimpy. Period. Maybe it's time for a great reset of the church to get back to the fundamentals of our faith. A couple of years before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to share a message with the church in Florida. And it's amazing, I was covering all these issues in the pre-pandemic time of what it means to be a church. And if you failed to be there, you'll never survive the storm when it will inevitably come. Look, the Bible talks about the trials of this life are gonna come. The church will be oppressed. Are you ready? And I can tell you, sadly, that church was not prepared. I wanna take you back to 2017 and, and take a moment right now to get your hearts and minds ready to receive what God has for you. you have to say open our eyes to see what you have given us our ears to respond to the things you have to say and our hearts to receive it in Jesus name amen, amen. seated I think it was about a month ago I had the opportunity to preach and we were talking about the disciples experiences with boating 
I don't think there was ever a time they ever got on a boat where they had a normal trip. At least the scripture doesn't tell us that they ever had a normal trip. Every time they got out on that Sea of Galilee, the winds blew, the waves came up every time. Almost like the hordes of hell were trying to upset the boat. But then again, we know if you look at the geography of the region, storms coming up suddenly on the Sea of Galilee is a common experience. That's why most of those that did their boating to move their goods didn't go across the sea. They stayed kind of close to shore to get back quickly. Just because of the way the mountains and the hills are and the influence from the Mediterranean Sea can kick up storms with brief periods of 50, 60 mile an hour winds. Kind of like Florida afternoon in the summer. It, they just come out of nowhere. And they didn't know when they would come up. They might not even have any rain, just a sudden clear day. And this sudden burst of wind can come across that water and throw up waves and everything else. And so once again, they're on the boat. This time Jesus, as he did before, gives them a head start. And they're out there and the winds come up and they, he comes walking across the water and gets in the boat. Now the most important thing to me in this gospel from, the cha from uh, John chapter 6 are the words, I love this, the simplest words that he could have said to his disciples, it is I, be not afraid. It is I, be not afraid. For see, Jesus if you understand the way Scripture talks about Christ's attributes, is the creator of all things. All things, even the weather, come under his subjection as the creator. So he comes and says, it is I, be not afraid. I want to move away from that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a couple of minutes of why we are not afraid and who that we serve. This, this lesson we just saw of the feeding of the 5,000, this is not the first time Jesus fed a large crowd. There's another story in the scripture. He fed 4,000. He liked that miracle so much he did it twice. If you think about that day, Jesus is beginning to get some, some fans and, and following. His reputation of healing and, and, you know, people have been known to come up from the dead and, and they're healed and all kinds of strange things are happening. We have to see this individual and all that he can do. If you understand the politics of the day, the Jewish people were still living under the authority of Rome. And they didn't like it. In their mindset, they are looking for a Messiah to overthrow the Holy Roman, or that time, just the Roman Empire. 
and get all these centurions and governors and prelates and everybody out of their life that were running their life and taxing them to death and keeping them in subjection. Because they were a conquered people living in essence in a type of captivity because they're not in control of their full destiny any longer. And so when they hear about this miracle worker, this so-called Messiah with power, the people are really looking for what they can get for themselves and what this guy can do to push out the Romans. Are we going to finally have our kingdom, our king, our full authority? Yeah, the Jewish people had a local king, but his authority was very subjected to the powers of Rome. He could only deal with the, quote, religious things and affairs of the people, the real things like taxation, the real things like who had the authority to take a life rested with Rome. You remember when Jesus, later on, is taken before King Herod, he can't kill him. He has to have the Romans do it. He has no authority. His being a king is a very limited monarchy limited to the powers of Rome. So they have to persuade the Romans to do their dirty deed because they couldn't do it themselves. So you have the Jewish people wanting to get rid of Rome. You see this miracle worker out here, and they want to know more. And they're following him, and they're out of food, and they're getting hungry. Now, Jesus then, we'll just do this very quickly in our minds here, takes a whole lot of little and makes it a whole bunch. From the little barley loaves and a couple of fishes, he feeds 5,000 people with food left over. Plenty of leftovers. He multiplied what that young guy gave. He gave everything he had. I mean, he was set for himself. He could have easily fed himself taken care of his needs and gone on his merry way home. But no, he was willing to sacrifice what he had to this individual, Jesus, who then multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. They were so impressed, as the Bible said, they were ready to make him the new king right now by acclamation. Wondering how the king would have felt that was sitting in Jerusalem at the time is another story, but... Jesus withdraws, sends his disciples away, and then catches up with them on the water when he stops the storm. What a, what a gospel lesson to have. The feeding, the disappearing act, and then the reappearing act on the water. What kind of faith do we have? Do we have the faith that it takes to be disciples of Jesus Christ Truly. Truly. I remember early in my ministry, thinking, you know, this is like, by the way, it was 20 years ago, right about now, that I took over a church on the other coast of Florida. 20 years ago. 20 years have gone by. And I walked into a small little storefront tinier than this, with a small group about the size of this, and I posed to them pretty much the same question I'm posing to you now. 
You know, Jesus once said, if you have the faith the size of a seed, a mustard seed, the smallest seed, you can move a mountain. And I looked at that congregation and said, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have faith that Jesus actually fed the 5,000, as we've learned today in this scripture, that he could walk upon the water, that he could raise Lazarus from the dead, that he could change water into wine? Do we really believe this stuff, or is this some old, wonderful story from years gone by that has no application to our lives today? Do we really believe this? Is it really the substance of who we are and what we truly believe? Do we believe in the miracles, or are they just a nice, wonderful, or do we believe in ourselves? The church today, in my opinion, faces several problems. Several problems. Many church bodies no longer believe what's contained in the scriptures, and it's become more of a social club or a group of social justice warriors. That's all they are. They don't really believe the scriptures. I remember one time after I took over that church in the other coast, I, this is in the early days of email and the early days of websites, and I put one together. I had an Episcopal priest send me a letter, an email, asking, did I really believe the nonsense in the Bible? And I wrote back and said, what do you mean? He says, Every, only an idiot would believe in the miracles of the Bible. I said, well, then what are you doing being a priest? He goes, I like organ music and a good paycheck. He believed that Jesus was dead, buried, and rotted somewhere, if he existed at all. His church had 500 people in it in the Tampa area. And so this is what was leading social justice warrior church. St. Paul says it so well, the day will come when they no longer will endure sound doctrine. They will heap unto themselves teachers with their itching ears, hearing what they want to hear. And so that's what they do. That's the one group that calls themselves the church but they're not the body of Christ because they don't even believe truly in the divinity of Christ. They're an organization that means well for whatever varying reason. Then we have the church, the church that so much wants to believe but they can't exercise their faith. Now you're probably saying, what, what, explain that one. They want to believe, but they can't exercise their faith. They want to believe that everything contained in the Scripture is true. But they're having a hard time standing on the promises that God has given. They, they, they're not able to make that first step of real faith, moving into where God would have them to move. And they look only at their own ability and resources, and if we can't do it, it cannot be done. They now limit Christ by saying, if we can't do it, it can't be done. Because aren't you relying on us to do it all for you? No, not at all. That kind of a church never finds a resting place. 
they never, they never quite get to where they need to be because they have never truly, fully stood on God's promises and said, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not one of those name and claim it preacher types you may have heard about in the past, you know, that we can claim anything and get anything. Well, if it's not in God's will, you're not going to get nothing, as they would say. The balance between stepping out on faith and taking the first step and listening to the power of his Holy Spirit talking inside of you and this church and those that lead it, those that guide it, those that are part of it, to say this, Lord, what is your vision? What's that verse out of the book of Proverbs where there is no vision, the people perish and nothing happens? Vision. I remember when I embarked on that journey 20 years ago this weekend, wondering would we ever, after their 20-some-odd-year history of going nowhere fast and declining and going backward, would there ever be a building someday? Would there ever be anything except what little they had? And we spent the first year dealing with the fact that it's not totally up to us to make all this happen. You know, where's the faith part? You know, I, I remember this one guy early on in the church before we got a building. And I'm preaching a, service, a sermon like this one today about faith, about standing on the promises, about looking at what Jesus has done, accomplished and if we're so in doubt that we, nothing's ever going to happen, why do we bother to believe in him if we don't believe he can do anything in our midst? And I remember this guy. He had been an accountant for General Motors Corporation. He was based out of New York City, and he oversaw their retirement funds back in the day from the 80s into the 90s, and then he retired and moved to Florida and had a place in Colorado. And I'm talking about getting a building. We had a building fund, and someone was about to make a large contribution toward that fund. Well, faith is only good to a point. I remember him saying that in a, in a meeting. And I said, really? Please define the point. He couldn't. But he said, as a practical matter, he started getting into the numbers and this and that and the other. I said, so what does your wisdom tell you that we need to do? I challenged him. He was on my vestry when he said that. When I talked about we need to step out on faith, begin to look and act like we are going to have our own place and grow. Until we make the first step, God's not going to drop a building out of the sky and buy the land for us and send us a golden invitation in the mail to come see your new church. It doesn't work that way. <clears throat> we need to do something as a part of the equation. So I asked him, you know, so what do you mean faith is good to a point? Well, the mind, that we, you know, we ha we're wise. We can do certain things. And I said, well, what are you proposing? I, he said, I want to take all the money that we have in the building fund and invest it for you for a year or two so you can have more. And I said, no, the Lord did not give us this money today to invest for some day down the road. 
and I refused to let him do it. And he gave a case of where we should invest it. He wanted us to invest $125,000 into Enron. He said we could double our money. I refused, and he and I had some words. Then I found out he was technically a member of another church in Colorado, and I threw him off the vestry and out of the church. The best thing I ever did. <laughs> Four months after he was gone, we were closing on the new building that God provided. The building he said we never could get. And when that church sold the building, they had $687,000 in equity in just a couple of years. They didn't think I knew what I was doing. God provided, made it happen. But I'll also tell you that church lost it all later because they stopped being faithful. They called an unfaithful pastor. They stopped doing the things that it takes to do to maintain the church. He ran a lot of people off. And the leadership of that church body did nothing to stop it until it was too late. Goes back to a sermon I preached a month ago, the hour of visitation. God's there. The water's stirring. Hop in. Enjoy. Step into the water. What's the message I'm trying to get to you today? Jesus says, it is I, fear not. Step out on faith. You're not going to drown. You're not. I'm not going to allow that to happen unless you want it to happen. If you want to drown yourself, go ahead. But if you trust me, you won't. That's a hard lesson for us to receive at times, this stepping out on faith. There's an old, old Christian song. I remember hearing Southern Gospel groups sing it. Faith is so simple. A child can do it. And sometimes that's where we make our biggest mistake. We forget our childhood. We forget the innocence. And we try to outthink God. And our mind is nowhere near his. We try to challenge and argue with his word, why it won't work. Have we ever done that saying, the word says this, but, but God, understand, it doesn't work that way in this. No, his word, what's it say, Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever, the same? I believe that fully. I know this past Sunday, I had the opportunity of sharing a message with a body of believers, and I really enjoyed it because I do prefer the older prayer book. I have to admit it. That's just me. I do like it. <laughs> you know. And it was, I felt so much at home there. Where is God taking the church in this age? Final thought before I close out. The United States, and I've said this over and over again on my radio show and a few times in this church, we've had it good, too good. You know, the church grew for 65 years in North Korea after the ceasefire, though it was illegal 
and could get you killed or put into a gulag or a prison camp, lose everything. It grew. We found out after Mao Zedong took over China in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and into the 90s, the church is still there underground and growing, though they could lose everything. There are churches in Pakistan, India, all parts of Africa that have been dominated by Islamic Sharia law, where the church is thriving, though they know they could die and lose their life for their faith. And here in America, the first time we're not happy with our church, we leave. If it's too much of a challenge or there's something else better coming along on a Sunday, how many people, you know, go to the first church of the Home Depot on Sunday morning or worship at Lowe's? Because it's available and it's easy and nobody, and there's, you know, we, church is something that for too many people today has become secondary. For some, if they don't feel like they're getting anything for themselves to benefit themselves, they keep church shopping or just stay home, period, and find something else better to do. For lack of a better term, it's, it's hard to sell a church in this day and age when you're asking for being uncomfortable, when you're asking to put yourself on the line in an increasingly secular society, when you're asking people to put faith in something like God's Word over the mind of man and the Internet, are we the church, the living body of Christ on this earth? Are we a remnant of what that body of believers that gave their lives and put them on the line 2,000 years ago in that first century? Or are we an afterthought? A club? Sometimes that's hard to hear. And I know that I, I wake up at night and I say, Lord, you've called me to do certain things. You've now provided the opportunity to do those things and it's time to walk through that door and get those things done. You know, it is I, be not afraid, when I ask you to take a step of faith. It is I, be not afraid, when I ask you to trust in my word. It is I, be not afraid, when I take you across the threshold of this life into the life of the world to come. It is I. Be not afraid to be my body on this earth, the ecclesia, because you've been called out. Heavenly Father, your church today in this country of America in particular, Canada, Europe, United Kingdom, no longer is the church of our fathers and, and forefathers. Many times they've ceased being the church at all. But you have those that are faithful to follow you that want to be your servants and obedient. We need your guidance and leadership more now than ever before. As we are truly in a very different time 
and age across this world. It's not the hordes of hell or the fear of war that challenges us. It's our abundance. It's our abundance and the use of our free will that can ruin us. Revive us, Lord. Bring us back to that place when we first met you, when we first knew you fully in as Lord of our lives, that we may follow you wherever you shall lead. For this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Weary soul, no longer tarry. Foolish heart, no longer stray.
Christ and see that Christ is alive. I find it hard to believe that I shared that message almost four years ago. And what I said then is even more true today. That was preached at a time when we really didn't have any hardship against the church per se. It really wasn't bad. We weren't being persecuted here in the United States. We are now under this new administration. We found out how many churches will cave to the government before they'll be obedient to God last year during the pandemic. And I have people to this day saying, well, we really needed to close for our safety, you know, and we have to be safe. We, we, we have to do what the government says. They don't have any faith in God. They literally believe Jesus is infected with the coronavirus and is going to kill you. This mentality showed up in many of the woke social justice churches, the happiest ones to stay closed the longest, because thankfully they had nothing to offer anyway, except wokeism and a pathway straight to hell. They're the ones that celebrate sin instead of talking about Christ's forgiveness and the sacrifice he made on the cross. I'm so glad the pandemic came for one reason when it comes to the church. It separated the true followers of Christ from the goats that follow Satan, period. You can disagree with me all you want and you can share your thoughts with me, but I'm telling you, if you think it was bad for the church this past 18 months or last year, wait until your faith becomes hate speech. It's on its way. It's already coming to Canada. It's already come to parts of Europe. It's right around the corner under this reprobate administration and leadership in Congress. Yeah, reprobates are now our rulers, not leaders, they are now our rulers. And they're going to demand obedience. They're going to crush the opposition. If you believe in this ministry, would you support it with your gifts? Our mailing address is 21 Berkshire, B-E-R-K-S-H-I-R-E, 21 Berkshire Lane, number 263 in Sky Valley, Georgia. And our zip code in Georgia is 30537. We'll be back tomorrow on Thursday with a very close analysis of some of the dangers we face today. This has been Truth to Ponder with Bob Bierman. To find out more, visit our website, truth, the number two, and the word ponder.com. That's truth, the number two, ponder.com. Truth to Ponder, shining the light of truth in a darkening world.